Cognitive dissonance is one of the biggest hurdles in the recovery after narcissistic abuse. It's one of the key pieces to resolve in stage one, the victim stage. You need to break through the cognitive dissonance in order to move towards stage two, the survivor stage. Cognitive dissonance is when you hold a belief so strongly that when contrary evidence shows up, you can't look at it. This causes so much anxiety that it sets off a short circuit in the brain. That allows the brain to go into denial in order to protect itself from feelings of fear, insecurity, and defenselessness. I'm Meredith Miller, and this is the Inner Integration Podcast, where you can learn the mindsets and tools to help you heal after narcissistic abuse. Cognitive dissonance is a back and forth between it's okay, it's not okay, and thoughts like, sometimes they're abusive, but sometimes they're really nice. When you listen to people talk about their abusers, you'll often find them doing this back and forth thing even in the same conversation. You might even notice you're doing it yourself. You might realize sometimes you love the abuser and other times you hate them. You might be angry and resentful for how awfully they treated you, yet you might still miss them. People often ask me, am I crazy for thinking that? No, you're not crazy. You went through what's called crazy making. The crazy making of narcissistic abuse is mostly caused by gaslighting and the back and forth between idealization and devaluation, which causes cognitive dissonance and the trauma bond. Cognitive dissonance is caused by the sweet, mean cycle of abuse along with the gaslighting and impression management that the abuser is doing. The sweet, mean cycle is the back and forth between the idealization and devaluation. This also contributes to the trauma bond, which is different but related. Check out episode one of this podcast to learn more about the trauma bond and check out episode 14 of this podcast to learn about the dangers of idealization. It's normal when you're going up and down on a roller coaster ride between being idealized and devalued that you will eventually internalize that kind of splitting. So at moments, you might think the abuser is wonderful and at other moments, you know they're no good for you. Splitting is black and white thinking. It's when the abuser sees you as all good or all bad with no middle ground. They can't reconcile that humans have positive and negative qualities. They can only see that you're all good when you're providing steady narcissistic supply and doing what they want, and you're all bad when you're setting boundaries and not doing what they want. Scientists say that the strong nuclear force is the strongest force in the universe. I'm not so sure those scientists ever studied the power of denial. It is a force to be reckoned with. Denial is the foundation of cognitive dissonance. It's also the most primitive human psychological defense mechanism. How do you dissolve the cognitive dissonance? People might tell you things like, you just have to accept that your partner, your parent, or your friend, etc. is a psychopath or a narcissist. That's kind of true, but it's missing a huge piece of the puzzle. You don't simply move from the strong force of denial into acceptance overnight. There's a huge piece of work that takes place between those two states. That work consists of four things. One, relentlessly facing the truth. This means you confront yourself daily and multiple times on the daily. The best way to do this is by writing the sobriety list. This is where you put everything that the person did that was hurtful, manipulative, abusive since the moment you met. Write a bullet-pointed list and keep adding to it as you think of more events or have more flashbacks. It helps a lot when you can label the behavior. For that, the best book is Dr. George Simon's book, In Sheep's Clothing. He outlines every covert aggressive manipulation tactic so you can label all those unexplainable things that the abuser did. Use those labels in your description of the things that the abuser did on your sobriety list. Your job is to start reading this list every time you catch yourself slipping into the denial, the illusion, the fantasy, or the false hope. It is so much more comfortable and familiar to stay in those states, but if you don't take this intentional action on the daily, you will stay stuck in the cognitive dissonance unable to move forward with your recovery. 
It's extremely uncomfortable to face the truth that we don't want to see. So you have to be a badass warrior with yourself to push yourself through this process of relentlessly facing the truth. You'll read that list over and over and over and over again, and eventually a spontaneous moment will arrive when you have a breakdown and a breakthrough that births your acceptance. That's when you'll finally get it at a visceral level. One thing is understanding this concept intellectually in the conscious mind. A whole other thing is getting it viscerally in the subconscious mind. You need to use your conscious mind to force yourself to look at this truth until your subconscious gets on board. It will inevitably happen as you keep looking at the truth. Be prepared for that breakdown moment to be super shitty. Like maybe curled up into a fetal position, sobbing for days, unable to eat or even do the tiniest bit of personal hygiene kind of shitty. It's okay. Remind yourself that the breakdown always comes before the breakthrough. Number two is work on integrating the mantra, it wasn't your fault. Stop blaming yourself for not being able to fix the unfixable. Stop beating yourself up about not being perfect or good enough. Stop telling yourself that if you only did this or that differently, then maybe things would have worked out. There was nothing you could have done to make that work. It wasn't your fault. Write that on sticky notes and put them around your house if need be. Set reminders on your phone to go off a few times a day, reminding you that it wasn't your fault. The abuser is the one with the problem. Number three, label the abuser and the abuse. It doesn't matter which label you use, narcissist, psychopath, sociopath, borderline, bipolar, manipulator, abuser, dickhead, cunt, whatever fits, let them wear it. Now, some people might get really triggered by this labeling part, particularly people who consider themselves spiritual. There's a whole movement in spiritual communities where they talk about non-judgment. Now, there's some truth to that. We don't want to be judgmental assholes. However, that tenet is also used to spiritually abuse people by telling them that they have no right to put the label of abuser on an abuser or to call out the abuse that's happening to them. Yes, this is a judgment. And yes, this is necessary if you ever want to get the clarity that you need to set yourself off the hook of the cognitive dissonance and break through into acceptance in order to move forward in the healing journey. If you tell people stories of abuse and the thing they're most outraged and offended by is the fact that you called the abuser a narcissist or a psychopath without being a licensed mental health professional or whatever label you choose that upsets them because it's judgmental, I would recommend distancing yourself from that person because they are dangerous to your sanity. This could be clueless and naive. However, more likely is that they are cut from the same cloth as your abuser. If someone can listen to stories of abuse and not be outraged by the abuse, but instead by your judgment of the abuser, that person has selective ethics and they are enabling abuse in the process. It reminds me of how outraged my mother would be whenever I used strong words. Meredith, your mouth. Yet ironically, She had no fucks to give when I confronted her on her abuse. Just excuses and more manipulation. You've got to label the abuser to free yourself from the excruciating confusion of, is it really abuse or am I overreacting? And the whole, she loves me, she loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Label it and set yourself free. Four is speaking your truth. Now remember, it's not going to heal you entirely simply by speaking your story. However, speaking it is the start of taking the power away from the abuser and returning it to you. Speaking your truth to people who are understanding, validating, and supportive starts to relieve you from the burden of the shame caused by the abuse. That is what weakens the trauma bond, which is something you'll face later in stage two of the recovery. It's important to understand that speaking your truth is not a betrayal or gossip. It's about telling your story, and it's imperative to the healing process. If the people who abused you wanted you to speak kindly of them, then they should have treated you better. People who can't handle your truth 
are not good allies. In fact, they could be dangerous to your sanity. They can cause you to further doubt yourself and to keep swallowing that shame that does not belong to you. Since it's really hard to face the truth, which is a huge part of the work that will lead you to resolve the cognitive dissonance, I have a few insights I want to share with you that will help you to do that. If you find yourself going back and forth about someone in your head where you're justifying and rug-sweeping the really shitty things they do based on the sometimes kind things that they do, that's not a good sign. The temporary absence of abuse is not love. If they have abused you before, they will do it again. That's not love. Love shouldn't hurt like that. That's abuse. This is how the abuse cycle works. It's sweet and it's mean. It's the only way to keep victims locked in. When you realize you're in a relationship where you're happy part of the time, like when you're not being abused, ask yourself, do you believe you're only deserving of part-time happiness? If you knew that your person is working on him or herself right now, wanting to be in a dedicated, loving, mutually uplifting and supportive relationship based on growth, and that the one major obstacle in the way of you meeting that person is the fact that you're still stuck on an abuser that you sometimes love and sometimes hate because they don't treat you right, or maybe you even let them go, but you're still doing this in your head and keeping yourself locked in, would that encourage you? to kick them to the curb, and to kick them out of your head? And finally, if you had self-respect and self-worth, would you put up with the abuse one moment longer? If those statements didn't make you hungry for the truth so you can resolve the cognitive dissonance, I want to talk about some science here. I want to tell you about two of the many forms of brain injuries that you have been through as a result of the abuse and how these relate to the cognitive dissonance. One of my friends just contacted me today. She's also been through abuse. She grew up in an abusive family. She had some kind of brain scan done, and they told her that her brain looked like she had had traumatic brain injuries. She's never fallen. She's never been in an accident or anything like that. That is what the abuse and the PTSD did to her brain. The first part of the brain I want to talk about is the hippocampus. This is found in the temporal lobes, and it's part of the limbic system, which is the center of emotional memory and short-term memory. It's where information is either transferred to long-term memory or immediately forgotten. So the entire learning process depends on the hippocampus. Have you ever noticed when you're trying to read or study that your brain can't remember anything from the paragraph you've been staring at for several minutes? This is why. The hippocampus is in charge of the short-term memory basics. This also explains what happens in abuse amnesia and the denial refuge from the cognitive dissonance, where information about the abuse is forgotten by the conscious mind. However, the subconscious remembers everything. You consciously forget the details of the abuse the next day or the next week or even the very next moment. Maybe you see the truth and know that you're in an abusive relationship during moments of lucidity and the denial kicks back in and you block out the parts that you don't want to see. These become automated response in the brain and the subconscious mind. Your conscious mind is unaware of this process. Cortisol is a stress hormone. If you've been in an abusive relationship, chances are your cortisol levels are chronically high. Cortisol eats away at the hippocampus like acid. People who have a history of trauma can have a 25% reduced function in the hippocampus and are less able to form new positive memories. The hippocampus also shrinks in depression. The amygdala is the other part of the brain I want to talk about. It's formed by two groups of nuclei also located within the temporal lobes where your brain processes memory, decision-making, and emotional reactions. The amygdala is your emotional compass that decides if you go to the frontal lobe or the neocortex thinking brain or to a 4F state. The four Fs are fight, flight, freeze, and fawn or fuck, which is in the reptile brain or the brain system. So the amygdala is in charge of emotional memory and emotional reaction, such as fear, sex, and anger. It sends a signal to the hypothalamus, or the HPA axis, which stands for the hypothalamus-pituitary-adrenal. 
This then triggers the 4F state, where hormones are released to support the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, fuck response. Amygdala hijacking is a term Daniel Goldman, author of Emotional Intelligence, coined to describe what happens when we encounter danger. An emotional response takes over the brain in such an emergency. Energy and memory goes toward impulse reactions and away from the thinking brain. Have you ever been in the middle of the abuse and you couldn't think about a healthy response, so instead you reacted emotionally in the moment even though you knew better? It was just an impulsive emotional reaction. That was an amygdala hijack. When that happens, your neocortex, your thinking brain, goes offline. All systems are alerted for the 4F state. Amygdala hijacking is most known for the aggressive anger or fight response, but it could be any of the 4F states that gets triggered. Essentially, what happens is the trauma overloads the nervous system with electromagnetic energy. The cognitive dissonance then trips the breaker in your brain, so to speak. It causes something like a short circuit of your brain, which then shuts down basic systems and kicks on survival mechanisms. Psychological abusers are masters at triggering that amygdala hijack. The thing is, they probably have no idea what they're doing, but they notice it's working somehow. This is how they get you to react. The abuser uses your emotions against you. It also explains how you can get hooked back into the hoovering stage with just one text message that appeals to your emotions. Also, something important to keep in mind is that every time the 4F state is triggered, the trauma bond strengthens with the abuser, making it even more difficult to leave. To stop it, you need to learn to take control of this process so you don't get swept up in the bait. The bait comes in the form of something that someone does that triggers the four Fs, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, fuck. This is why I talk about responding instead of reacting. You can find those videos on YouTube. The amygdala is the anxiety switch. The body's anxiety switch is normally off until moments of danger when an appropriate anxiety response is needed for survival. Chronic stress can make it stuck on. In anxiety disorders, the on switch becomes the new norm. When constant stress, anxiety, and fear ensue, a reaction from the amygdala triggers the primal emotions of anger, fear, and desire. When you're in a narcissistically abusive relationship, you're in an almost constant 4F state, like every moment of every day. You'll have moments of calm when the abuser has retreated, is temporarily occupied, or is preparing for the next round, but in those calm moments, there's like an underlying baseline anxiety and jitteriness, sometimes even dread, because you don't know when the next attack is coming. Your switch is always on. This is one of the reasons you're utterly exhausted after one of those relationships. Every time you experience a re-triggering through encounters with the abuser, their flying monkeys, digital contact, flashbacks, looking at photos, etc., your primitive defense mechanisms are triggered, denial mainly, and then the conscious mind goes into a romanticized, rationalized view of your relationship with selective positive memory and positive projection, which is you projecting your innate qualities of compassion, empathy, caring, and understanding onto the abuser who does not connect with those feelings. The good news is the brain can be healed from these traumas. It's not static. Harvard discovered neuroplasticity several years ago, and now we know for a fact that we can create long-term positive changes in the brain. That was a little excerpt of one of the episodes in my 12-week sauna series. If you haven't checked it out yet, you might want to. You'll find over 11 hours of audio content on the self-healing process after narcissistic abuse. Here are some clips from my YouTube channel on the topic of resolving the cognitive dissonance. This question comes from a person who says, Hello Meredith, thank you for all the information, help, and kindness. I grew up with a manipulative person around, so I naturally came to accept that what they did was quote-unquote love. I know it was actually love bombing now, but as I re-examine my life and childhood especially, I have pretty idyllic memories, since much of what has been done to me was always justified as being in my best interest and out of love, so it became a fact in my mind. Can I really trust my memory? Please advise, as this makes it confusing to discern the toxic behavior that still keeps 
happening. What you're talking about is couching. I don't know if you guys have heard this term. Couching is like a turd wrapped in gold. It's a put down disguised as concern for your best interest and done out of love, or it's disguised under humor. It's just a joke, that sort of stuff. And it's a way of minimizing it. It's also a way of redirecting and being basically covert about the abuse. So that's very, very common, especially you'll notice this with narcissistic parents. They love to do the couching thing, especially when you confront them on what happened. They always use the plausible deniability. No, that's not what I meant. I'm just so concerned about you. You might notice you have friends like that. Like if you had a mother like that, you probably have a mean girlfriend who's doing the exact same thing. You know, you want to check in on that. Or maybe you're attracting partners or bosses or coworkers or people who are doing that same thing. What I find is that women generally justify it based on concern. Men generally justify it based on humor. And even in the American way that men call it banter, the way that men talk to each other is basically a form of this. And they're just, they're cutting each other down. And then they're just saying, well, it's funny. It's just humor. It's just banter. But that's really destructive. And, and I don't agree with those techniques. And I don't agree with the techniques like negging, which is what's taught in the pickup artist community. They teach men to do this to women, to put her down subtly, to cause her to feel insecure. And then she has to work to get your approval. Very sick. They're teaching narcissistic abuse, right? So that's what that was. That was called couching. And it's very confusing. It causes cognitive dissonance, right? Well, you're describing about your idyllic childhood, but then knowing the truth and then the love and the love bombing and how do you trust your memory. Cognitive dissonance is when you hold a belief so strongly, you want to believe it so bad that when contrary evidence shows up that threatens that belief and that reality paradigm, you will fight hard against accepting that evidence, no matter how obvious that evidence is, because it goes up against the very belief that you want to maintain. And that cognitive dissonance of the evidence of the truth and the belief that you really want to hold on to, it short circuits the brain. It causes a very dangerous shift in the brain. And in these beliefs that we hold keep us from looking at that evidence. So what eventually happens is the insecurity, even the subconscious insecurity of hearing the information that contradicts our worldview, it makes us feel confused. It makes us feel afraid. It makes us feel anxious. And then we put up these psychological defenses like denial that protect us from those emotions. So the denial, when the new evidence presents itself, actually, my mother really isn't capable of love and empathy and compassion. She was just couching her abuse that way. When this sort of information comes up, the denial can kick in because we'd rather hold on to this truth. No, no, that's, that's, that's it wasn't that. It wasn't my mom. No, she would never do that. No. And so we start to justify why. We start to rationalize and minimize why that's not really happening because we really, really, really want to believe this instead. So it's more about your perspective and shifting your perspective to align with the truth, right? The memory was idealized to the belief that you wanted to have as a little kid. What little kid doesn't want to believe that their mommy really loves them? There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. Every kid wants and needs to believe that. Your survival was based on you believing that because if your mother didn't love you, if your mother abandoned you emotionally, maybe she provided everything. Maybe your family provided food, clothing, shelter, but the emotional connection wasn't there. It felt like life or death. And it was when you were a little child, you were totally dependent on them. I've mentioned this several times, but if you haven't heard the orphanage experiment that they did, I think it was back in the 1200s. And then they repeated it a couple centuries later where half the kids in the orphanage, they gave food, clothing, and shelter to, but they would just feed them and then put them back in their cribs or wherever they were sleeping. The other half were cuddled. They were given food, clothing, and shelter, and they were also cuddled. All of the children who were not touched, who were not cuddled, died. That's how important emotional connection is. That's how important physical touch is to the life of that child. It is life or death. So if that was your truth and you were left and you were abandoned because your narcissistic parent was so involved in herself and all that was going on, or your mother was the codependent, which is not 
I think your case, but in other cases could be the mother was the codependent and so absorbed with the abusive father who was somewhere on that cluster B spectrum or an alcoholic or an addict that all of her attention was there and the baby wasn't getting the kind of emotional connection that he or she needed. So understand that your perspective determines your reality. You're an adult now. There's that little part of you, the little inner girl, your inner child, which is still very much living in that reality. So you want to start recognizing that your perspective determines your reality and you are responsible responsible for your reality. So you want to shift your story into a perspective of greater truth. And this is going to be a process. It's not going to be like all at once you can suddenly accept all the truth. Sometimes it takes time. That cognitive dissonance can be so strong, so strong. You know, the amount of intensity even that the trauma bond still has with that parent can be causing you from accepting the truth. And that truth is that You kind of know it on one level, but your subconscious is still living in the past. So to help you face that, you want to start facing examples of that truth. You want to look at things like George Simon's book, In Sheep's Clothing, where he lines up all of the covert aggressive tactics so that you can recognize all those things that your mom did that you didn't recognize was abuse, but were actually abuse. And you can listen to, for example, if you go to YouTube and you type in narcissistic mother, somewhere in there is going to come up a playlist of like 20 some short videos. And each of those, it's like a little playlist together. Each of those is like one more characteristic of a narcissistic mother. These things might've happened to you. That to me was the final shake out of that whole cognitive dissonance around my mom. Just hearing those videos explain, wow, that is exactly what happened. I just didn't realize that was abuse at the time. And the more you confront that truth, the more you work your way towards that acceptance, the acceptance is the last phase of the grieving process. The first phase is denial. So you come full circle by the end with the acceptance of that truth. First, there's the denial, and then there's the bargaining, and there's the anger, and the depression, and then finally you get out into the acceptance, which doesn't mean you accept that situation in your life. It means you accept the truth of what it is or what it was. And if you can't accept and face what happened, you won't be able to recognize it when the next one comes along. That's why this is so important. You will find yourself doing the exact same defense mechanisms like denial to maintain the reality you want to believe in. Until you heal that core wound around your parent, around your mother in this case, until you really face that truth, you're going to keep attracting people who are going to do the same thing and you're going to have a hard time recognizing it when it's happening because you haven't resolved the past yet. So essentially what's happening when we avoid the truth, we're avoiding the breakdown of our worldview. It's like the house of cards, which will fall apart. Once you see the truth, that whole house of cards of illusions crumbles and that leads to to a breakdown, but the breakdown happens before the breakthrough. That's how it is. It's always like that. You always feel worse. You always break down before you come back up, before you have that breakthrough, oh my God moment or the aha moment or that moment where suddenly all these pieces just line up and come together. And it's normal to want to avoid the breakdown, which is why we don't want to see the truth. So I want to avoid the truth, but the truth is what's going to set you free. We need the truth to heal. And you might, your conscious mind right now might be like, yes, yes, I want the truth. I need the truth. I want to heal. But your subconscious mind, which is the majority of your consciousness, is still wanting to hold on to the past, which is why it takes a while to override this. You have to keep confronting yourself with the truth and keep confronting yourself. And you're not alone and you're not stupid for not seeing that. I think all of us at some point were like, I was so stupid. I was so dumb. Why didn't I see it? And it's not about that. And this is a comparable example. Some people don't want to talk about this. Some people get really, really upset when you put this evidence in front of them, particularly Americans. And this is the exact same thing. Are you ready? Psychologists, and I'm going to put a link to the video below. Psychologists explaining the cognitive dissonance, why Americans are afraid of accepting the truth of 9-11 and the impact of that trauma, which was used to justify war and strip the people of our civil rights for the last 16 years. And what we learned is that people will give up all their rights in the name of fear. Fear is a powerful tool of manipulation. And in America, we have a belief Not all of us, but a lot of people have a belief called American exceptionalism. What that is is an excessive form of nationalistic pride where people say, that would never happen here. 
Not in America. This is just a belief system. It's not based on anything true. It's a belief system that's been passed on through propaganda through the society. But I can tell you that the day that 9-11 happened, I had a lot of friends from Europe, from South America, and I was talking to them and not one of them believed the official story. The official story is what George Bush was telling us and the government kept repeating and, and, and weapons of mass destruction and in Iraq and we need to go to war in Iraq and all this. The official story that everybody believed, my friends from other countries did not believe it. They immediately called bullshit on it. And even my gut was telling me something was icky, something wasn't right about it. Why were they able to see that and Americans weren't? Because it happened there. They lived in Argentina, in Chile. I mean, it was just in the 60s, 70s and 80s. It wasn't inconceivable to them that their government would allow and participate in such atrocities against their people. It wasn't inconceivable because it happened to them. It just hasn't happened here. People haven't realized that they didn't want to believe it. So what's the cognitive dissonance? On one hand, we have the official story along with American exceptionalism that would never happen here. And on the other side, we have 16 years now of scientists, engineers, architects, pilots, researchers who have been telling us and showing us that the official story cannot be true. Once you understand how 9-11 was used as trauma-based mind control, which is a technique used in the CIA and Mossad and other intel agencies like this, trauma-based mind control. You can start to see how narcissistic abuse is happening on a societal level and how it is actually everything that's wrong with this world. Sociopaths in positions of power running the world, gaslighting us through the mainstream media propaganda, telling us the official story that they want us to believe through talking points that they repeat and repeat. Weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden. And they repeat these things, and this is called a controlled narrative. It's the same thing the narcissist did when you were in the relationship, when they were controlling the gaslighting and the ambient abuse, telling you what was reality and what you needed to believe in. It's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. And it might be that now that you've gone through this experience in an interpersonal and or familial way, in your life, the narcissistic abuse, that it might be easier now for you to recognize these patterns on a societal level. It's happening. It's been happening for a long time. And I'm going to put the link below if you want to see that. You'll just listen to all the psychologists explaining the cognitive dissonance and why it's so hard for Americans to see the truth. It's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing as the cognitive dissonance that you have from your relationship with that person or from the familial relationship with the mother that you thought loved you, that didn't really love you, that she was couching her, her abuse based on concern for you and wanting to protect you or even in cases of humor where it's just a joke, that sort of situation, that cognitive dissonance can really distort your perception of reality. That's, this is psychological abuse predominantly, the narcissistic abuse. Some people experience physical abuse. Some people experience sexual abuse. Some people experience financial abuse. Some people experience spiritual abuse. But predominantly, it is a psychological abuse. It's the exact same thing that they're using on a grand scale in society with their trauma-based mind control. They realize they can control the mind and be behavior of people if they traumatize them and then present the solution. It's the same thing the narcissist did to you. It's the same thing your parents did. Someone says, I still have days that I fight with the cognitive dissonance. My ex was emotionless, not grandiose or loud, sometimes not even selfish. I had to become a mind reader, walk on eggshells and look for those crumbs of affection with a magnifying glass to avoid the controlling sentiments. Can you expound on or have experience with the covert narcissist? I find if I name something, I can understand more. Yes. Covert narcissist. So those are the more complicated ones. They're not like the overt kinds. It's like, really obvious. And like you talked about, walking on eggshells, looking for those crumbs of affection, being a mind reader, because the covert narcissist is always the victim. They're always blaming you. It's always your fault or poor me that I'm such a martyr sacrificing everything for everybody else. And you won't give me this and do what I want and that sort of thing. They, they are very, very confusing. Ross Rosenberg has an excellent video on covert narcissists. I recommend checking that out. The more covert they are, the more confusing it is because the less proof you get ever. The cheating, the lying, the gaslighting, the deceiving, and being that they present themselves as the victim, the covert narcissist looks a lot more like the borderline personality disorder, etc. 
except the covert narcissist doesn't have the emotional range that the borderline personality disorder has. Equally destructive, but a whole different kind of thing. It's just that they're both coming from that victim status, which is why it's confusing because they don't seem like an abusive person. It's just that they're using these very covert, aggressive manipulation tactics. I don't know if you have read Dr. George Simon's book, In Sheep's Clothing. He outlines technique by technique, each of these covert, aggressive manipulation tactics that manipulative people use. It's really helpful to look at the techniques so that you isolate the techniques from the person. This covert narcissist that you know, and when you see these tactics and you see it happening in real time, then you're like, oh, that's guilt tripping. Oh, that's blame shifting. Oh, that's minimization. And there's like names for all of these techniques that they use, these covert aggressive manipulation techniques. And sometimes you don't even realize that they were manipulating you, like emotionally blackmailing you or something like that. You don't even recognize sometimes that's what's happening because in the moment your guilt and your conscience is triggered and you feel like you have to do this for them. You feel like it's your responsibility you feel like it's it's on you to do it because they make you feel that way. And until you recognize those covert aggressive manipulation tactics for what they are, it's a lot harder to recognize who you're dealing with and what they're doing and how they're manipulating you. I would definitely read those. Like you talked about naming something to understand it more. That's, that's exactly what his book does when he names those covert aggressive manipulation tactics. It just like, it, it becomes more sterilized and more clinical and less emotionally reactive when you can see it, what it is. Like, like I described it, like watching TV, you know, when the emergency broadcast thing comes across the bottom, it's like beep, 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 minimization alert, beep, 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 gaslighting alert, beep, 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 guilt tripping alert. You start to see it like that and then you're less emotionally triggered into it. So for example, with the guilt tripping, which is one of the covert favorite forms of manipulation, instead of immediately being triggered into the guilt and feeling like you have to rescue the person or take responsibility for whatever is going on with them or happening or their feelings and emotions, instead you'll see it as guilt tripping and it'll be like, yeah, that's not mine. I'm not going to take that. I'm not taking responsibility for that. And so it just becomes a lot easier to deal with that. Someone asks, what is the difference, relation, between the trauma bonding, cognitive dissonance, and gaslighting? So these are three different things, and yes, it's all layered and connected. So gaslighting is an aggressive form of manipulating another person's perception of reality. Gaslighting is when you know something happened and you confront a person about what happened, whether it just happened or it happened a long time ago, and the person says, no, that didn't happen. Hmm, I don't remember that. No, you're remembering that wrong. Oh, you're just hypersensitive. I didn't mean it that way. You know I didn't mean it that way. I was just joking, babe. These sorts of excuses that they're making, that's gaslighting. Gaslighting is a form of lying. It's essentially lying, but it's a way of manipulating your perception of reality. It is very, very dangerous because you lose sense of reality. You have got to take responsibility for your reality. In order to override that is you just have to start trusting your perceptions of reality. I know it's really difficult when the person in front of you, when your partner, your boss, your coworker, your sibling, your parent, whomever in your life is doing this and you're like really doubting yourself, right? You're like, well, but, and you're like the plausible deniability. It could be, maybe they were just joking. Maybe they really didn't mean it that way. But when you see a pattern, right? And I'm not talking about this happened one time. If it happened one time, it was one time. When you see the pattern of this happening, that's real. That's when you got to understand you're being played and you got to stop buying into that. You got to stop accepting the excuses because when you accept the excuse for that gaslighting, you are enabling the abuse. And the narcissist tends to do this early on in the relationship. There's a wonderful YouTube channel with lots of information. It's called Be Good 4000. And James really goes into this. He created a couple of videos called the doo-doo test or the narcissist doo-doo test. And there's like part one and part two. Highly recommended to watch that. He will explain to you how the narcissist will do this to you early on in the relationship. Now the borderline will do this in different ways. The psychopath and sociopath will do this too. And they'll pretend like nothing happened and that it was just you. And they'll test 
your reaction. And so they're gonna, they're testing, are you gonna trust yourself or are you gonna second guess yourself and believe them? And they are counting on the fact that your conscience works, that you have an actual working conscience. So your conscience is gonna doubt yourself because you're like, well, you know, um, and so you're considering the other person's point of view. And it's good to consider other people's point of view, but it's also really good to listen to your intuition. And when that bullshit meter is going off, listen to the bullshit meter. The bullshit meter is telling you that you're being played. Even if you have no proof of that, if you get the feeling, trust that. So you really wanna start to understand how your body and your intuition communicate to you when someone is lying and manipulating your perception of reality. Maybe you get this sinking feeling in your gut. Maybe you even feel like suddenly you have to go to the bathroom. You know, Maybe your heart starts to flutter and things just feel uncomfortable and weird inside your chest. Maybe you start to like tremble in your body and you get nervous. You're feeling like the fight or flight syndrome. That fight or flight thing is telling you you're in danger. There's something there that's causing you anxiety. Some Something's not right. Maybe all you feel is just this inkling of, man, something just ain't right here. Listen to that. Every time you get that, man, something just isn't right. Listen to that. Listen to that always. So that's gaslighting. The trauma bonding happens when you are with an abusive person. That's also called Stockholm Syndrome. That takes place when you fear for your life. You feel like there's no way out. You know, you feel trapped with this abusive person who's holding you captive, literally. Like in this relationship, they're holding you in this dynamic. Now, of course, you have the ability to leave at any moment, but when you're locked into that trauma bond, your perception tells you there's no escape. Your perception tells you there's no way out. Your perception tells you you have to stay. And then it, your mind will make up all these reasons why. It just it fills in all the blanks and so you stay. And the trauma bond, the Stockholm Syndrome, only works when that person doses you with drops of kindness could be something like they know they, they want to get something from you so they make your favorite dinner or they buy your favorite wine and then the abuse comes right after that because you've now opened yourself and softened. Maybe it's some kind of flattery compliment that they give you and they know that that's going to open your heart and then you're going to start to place your approval and sense of validation in that person and then later that's when they come in and zing you. So be very cautious when you know you're in an abusive relationship. When that person is being kind Kind to you, that kindness is a form of manipulation. That kindness is for an end goal of getting you to do something that they want you to do. Be very concerned when you see that person being kind. I know, it's like it's the cognitive dissonance of it. That's the next thing we're gonna go to. The cognitive dissonance is like, what well, doesn't make sense. Like, okay, your brain tells you, okay, this person is abusive and manipulative and they did all these things, but then they just did this kind thing or they did all these other kind things, but then they're also like this. And so your brain is going, but they're like this. And then they're like this, but they're like this. And it's like, and it creates like this short circuit inside your brain, which like fries your brain. It fries your mind. It's what causes the confusion and what's called the brain fog that happens from abuse. That's what's happening. It's the cognitive dissonance. It's trying to hold two completely contradictory points of view or ideas or opinions or perceptions of reality within your mind. It's very confusing that way. That's when you slide into that brain fog because you have no clarity. You don't know what's real. Is it this? Is it this? What is it? And the danger is to get caught up in those moments of kindness or to keep staying for the carrot stick of kindness or to keep staying thinking about early on in the relationship when things were good, when they were expressing this kindness on an everyday or frequent basis and before everything, before that stopped, that pattern, the idealization, love bombing pattern stopped and then you moved into the devaluation phase and then it was the intermittent kindness and recognize that that's a very powerful form of psychological manipulation. So. All of these terms are related, the trauma bonding and Stockholm syndrome, the cognitive dissonance and the gaslighting. And, and this is all, all of these are part of what's called crazy making. Like it makes you feel like you're going crazy. That's why almost every single person coming out of these relationships says, I feel like I'm going crazy. Am I crazy? All this happened, is it me? Until they get that feedback from someone who gets it and someone who validates their perception of things, it's just so confusing and you can really feel like you're the one who's 
crazy. You are not crazy. It's just that you have been through abuse training. It is a form of psychological conditioning and training. They have groomed you. They have trained you to react in certain ways to their abuse in order to fulfill their needs, in order to give them whatever it is that they want. And they utilize these tools. Question. I still struggle with cognitive dissonance and having feelings still for the narcissist and my dad, who both did not treat me well. I struggle with the feelings of hating them and loving them at times. Any advice on how to deal with that or tips on letting myself know that it's okay to feel this way at times? Yeah, it's totally normal to feel this way. The back and forth between loving them and even missing them to a certain degree can happen. And then the reality, the feelings of the reality of what happened, of the abuse that happened and not treating you well. And it will go back and forth. That's totally normal. It's part of that roller coaster. It's part of the Stockholm syndrome, the trauma bond. And this is why in the aftermath, it's so important that a person write down all of the abusive things that the other person did so that when they go into the denial of things, because it'll, it'll be in and out. Because when, when the person is thinking about loving them and missing them, they're in the denial again. And so the denial of the big picture. So to get the person back out of that, it's usually helpful to go back and read, okay, this happened on this day and that happened on that day. And that was that. And then you remember and you're like, okay, yeah, that wasn't a healthy situation. It doesn't mean you suddenly stop loving the person, that takes more time for that to go away. And sometimes it may never totally go away. You might always have some part of your heart that loves that person for one of their redeeming qualities because the reality is that every one of these people has redeeming qualities. Like you would not have fallen in love, you would not have been attracted to them if they didn't have some great qualities about them, something that you were attracted to, even if it was just their intelligence. You know, maybe they weren't a kind person in any way, but maybe it was just their intelligence that you're really into or like their creative drive that was so inspiring or something. And so it's good to acknowledge that and to recognize like, okay, so if, this, if we're talking about a partner, like a former partner of yours, it's great to acknowledge that and say, okay, this quality, intelligence, genius level intelligence maybe, is something that you're really attracted to. And so that's something that you want to look for in a mate. And maybe you never dated someone before who had that level of intelligence. And maybe that was just awesome to you. You loved having really big conversations with them. I mean, I don't want to say deep because it wasn't emotional, which would be deep, right? But stimulating intellectual conversations and they knew a lot about stuff and like maybe you really enjoyed that. And so that was the first time you got to experience that. So now you know that's one quality that you want to look for in a mate. Through that person, you had the opportunity to learn that you're really looking for certain qualities that maybe you didn't recognize before. So you can have a sense of gratitude, but also recognize that even though that person from the past had that quality, many, many, many people have that quality. It's just that that person from the past was not the right match. There were other parts of their personality and who they are that were not okay for them, for you to be around. And so you need to find that quality in someone else. Being able to recognize the positive things, but isolating them, the way I would do it is like to isolate the quality itself, not the person, the quality that you enjoyed. That way it's no longer about that person and now it becomes a quality that you're looking for. And that can go for an ex that isn't a narc too. Maybe you meet somebody and you date somebody for a while and you just realize, well, the person isn't a narcissist. They're not anywhere on that cluster B spectrum, but they're just not the right match for you. But through them, you also recognize that there are some qualities in them that you really admired, that you really enjoyed, and that you want to look for in the future in the mate. And being able to isolate that and to learn that. So some kind of of learning experience is sometimes helpful to get yourself to some peace of mind around that and to also just totally you asked about letting yourself know that it's okay to feel this way it's totally normal everybody feels that way getting out usually unless maybe it's like the eighth time that they broke up and now like they're so mad at that person they hate that person so much they just can't connect with the love at all but even so there's still probably moments where they're reminiscing about the love feelings because it's love like you can't help yourself 
it's a normal, it's a normal feeling to have after you've spent time and invested into a relationship with someone. And so, yeah, it's totally normal. It's totally okay. Let yourself know this is part of the healing process, the, the up and down, the in and out of denial and clarity and going back and forth between loving them and fully recognizing that was like a really, really bad situation. That's not a healthy person to be around. So I think probably a lot of people recognize that struggle too inside themselves especially at the beginning, I would say probably the first three months are probably the hardest part. First month, of course, being the most intense. Then it gets a little easier by the second month. By the end of the third month, usually those feelings are really starting to like stabilize. It doesn't feel like the up and down as much. You know, the only thing that can delay that is if a person is still in contact in some way. If, if, if they're actually in contact, they're having like a conversation or something, or maybe they're just receiving messages and they're reading them instead of deleting or blocking, or maybe a person kept photos or old text messages or emails and they're going back or they kept a sweatshirt or a ring or driving by the house. All of those things will delay the healing process. But once a person is clear from that, usually the first three months of detox make a huge difference in your stabilizing emotions. Because you know, remember that roller coaster, that's the ride you took with them. That's who they are. They're like this. And so when you took that ride with them, you went like this. Have you ever gotten off? Like I haven't been on a roller coaster in ages, but going on certain rides or certain things, or even if you go in the ocean for a while and then you go lay down, do you notice how your body is still moving? If you close your eyes, you can still feel the ocean waves like moving your body. Or if you get off the ride, you still feel like you're on it or you get off of a boat, you still feel like you're on it. Well, something like that is what's happening after this relationship. So you're, you feel like you're still on that roller coaster ride for a period of time until the hangover wears off and, and it will happen. And what can you do to help yourself along? I would just keep ingesting doses of truth, doses of truth of like, this was not healthy. This was not a good situation. This was an abusive situation. It's okay that I feel this way and it's better than that I move on from this person and, and not dwell on the good times and everything as much as possible because the more that you dwell on that kind of stuff, the more it holds you in there. You know, sometimes people will get stuck in like the nostalgia and the reminiscing of things and catching themselves wishing that things were different or that they could go back to a certain point in the relationship. But all of that will really keep a person kind of stuck there. Just delay the getting off the ride phenomenon where you stop feeling like you're still on this ride even though you're not with the person. So yeah, it's totally normal to feel that way. Try not to beat yourself up for it. I know sometimes I'd be like, oh my God, like how can I love this person? And that will wear off in time. And it's totally normal. It is the Stockholm Syndrome. Like if you read about the Stockholm Syndrome, you'll read how when they interviewed the hostages afterward, you know, like a man and a woman, both of them had incredible amounts of sympathy for the robbers who kept them at gunpoint as hostages. They didn't even have a relationship, like a loving, long-term, intimate relationship. They were held as hostages and they felt that sense of love for their captors. So this is like way beyond your conscious mind. This is like an actual survival mechanism of the human brain and nervous system. So it's totally normal. And it's not that you're doing something wrong. It's just that it's like the hangover that'll happen for a while after you're getting off the ride. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Inner Integration Podcast. I hope you learned something today that helps you see from a new perspective so you can take new action and transform your life after narcissistic abuse. Remember, you are enough, you matter, and you got this. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to get automatic updates on new podcast episodes as they're released. Visit us online at www.innerintegration.com where you'll get a free three-part video course when you enter your name and email on the homepage. Get loads of more free content to help you heal after narcissistic abuse on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Big hug to you.